Proverbs 17. It's been a few weeks. We've been back in Proverbs. Proverbs 17. And we're going to be in verses 11 through 19 tonight. Proverbs 17. If you're able to, stand with me as we read the scriptures this evening. reading in verse number 11. Bible says, An evil man seeketh only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger shall be sent against him. Let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with. He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. He that loveth transgression, uh, lo- that loveth, he that loveth transgression, that loveth strife, and he that exalteth his gate seeketh destruction. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray you bless our time in the Word tonight. I pray you give us wisdom, Lord, tonight to discern and to understand and to apply the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We're going to begin verse by verse tonight in verse number 11. An evil man seeketh only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger shall be sent against him. We've seen this truth a lot in Proverbs an evil man only seeks rebellion, or a wicked man only seeks wickedness. The rebellion, in the context he's talking about here, is rebellion against God. The wicked man only seeks to rebel, only seeks to do wickedly. Have you ever met people like that? They just want to do wrong. They want to do wickedly. I had a young man tell me one time, I tried to correct him, doing wrong is more fun. I'll always choose wrong. I don't like doing right. That's a wicked heart. It's a wicked heart. They set their heart upon evil. The rebellion of the verse is against God. The wicked only seek to do wickedly. Wickedness is in their heart, and that leads to wickedness in action. Our actions come from our hearts. Say, I struggle we all struggle with sin. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not talking about the occasional. I mean, those people who walk in sin and say they're Christians, they live habitually in sin. That's, a, that's an indicator of where their heart is. Their heart is set on sin. We only act out that which is in our heart. Right? So a godly person, what's in their heart? Godliness. They love Christ in their heart and they come to the outside. The wicked, when they do wickedly, what are they showing? Their heart is wicked. These lewd parades, these blasphemous people, as you walk by, they're, you're preaching or handing out tracts, and they blaspheme God or speak against the Lord. Their heart is wicked. They're not just having fun. They're not just being sarcastic. They're, they are wicked at heart, and it comes out in their action. Some have darker hearts than others. 
And all they do is think of new ways to do evil. People who seek for chances to break the law. They look for rules to break. I've met those people. I went to school with some of those people. They looked for rules they could break. These were young people whose hearts were set on wickedness, and they grew up to be adults whose hearts were set on wickedness. It says, because of this, a cruel messenger will be sent against them. This can be demonstrated in the Bible. We saw Babylon brought against Israel for their wickedness. We saw Rome brought against Israel for their wickedness years later. God will use a means to punish evil. He'll send an evil messenger to punish evil. He'll bring something against somebody who's wicked. The wicked will be punished. I think it's Proverbs. I forget the text now. Proverbs. It's up in the 20s. He that, uh, being often reproved but hardened his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The judgment is coming upon the wicked. We see it clearly in Revelation, don't we? God uses demons to punish people who are sinning, and what do they do? They double down. They refuse to repent of their wickedness, repent, refuse to repent of their sorcery and their idolatry and all the stuff that's going on there. Verse 12, let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. What a scary thought. I'm afraid of bears. I don't go camping. I don't believe in camping. <laughs> Let me correct that. I love camping. If by camping you mean a room that faces the tree in the hotel, that's camping. Um, I love vacation. I just need a warm shower, a, a soft bed, cable TV. And uh, beach camping would be a room that looks over the ocean. But I'm not a fan of, people die when they wander into the forest. I keep watching these videos of these tragedies, I'm like, why do people go to the forest? There's bears, there, I'm watching a video the other night about these people just, just riding a canoe through Australia, and they got eaten by a crocodile, I'm like, that's what you get for canoeing in Australia, why are you in Australia? Everything in Australia wants to kill you. People go in the water and they get eaten by a shark, and I'm like, serves them right. We are watching a video the other day of a shark attack. I forget where it was now. Pretty sure it was in California. The guy was in knee-deep water. Knee-deep. And a 16-foot great white came up and grabbed him and pulled him out to deeper water. A 16-foot. Can you believe me? Say, why is Pastor on the sand? Because it's safe there. Can you imagine if people get eaten by bears and attacked by bears and mauled by bears? Well, the Bible says it's better to get eaten by a bear an angry bear, than to meet a fool in his folly. Pretty harsh words. A bear robbed of her cubs is ferocious. Few animals are as mean as a mother bear when her cubs are being messed with. Yet it's safer to meet her than a fool, and it, really it's saying a fool given to anger. When it says a fool in his folly, the folly is anger. A fool given to anger is a dangerous thing dangerous thing. We need to have control over our spirits. A fool who can't control his anger is dangerous. How many crimes, how many murders are committed as a result of just a moment of anger? Blind rage. Road rage. I remember a story about a year ago. It was on, a, I think it was on, it was on one of the LA freeways. And this guy cut off this lady. It was her and her five-year-old son in the car. 
And he cut her off. And so she went and she sped up and flipped him the happy finger. And then cut him off. And he swings back around in his, in his rage. And his, well, she did it in her anger. Then in his anger, he pulls out a gun and he shoots into her car and shot her five-year-old son. Anger, uncontrolled anger leads to death and destruction. There's two guys in Bakersfield a few years ago. They're arguing over a parking spot at the grocery store. And one guy in his, in his fit of anger pulled out a gun and shot the other guy and killed him. In the jailhouse interview, he said, I was on my way to the store to get some food for my wife and kids. He goes, now I'll never see them again. I'll be in jail. He got, I don't know what he got, 30, 40 years in prison. He said for one moment of anger he wished he could take back, he lost his entire life. Make sure you have control. We're foolish if we don't control our, our temperament. We're foolish if we let our anger control us. How much we need to work on that and fight against that. The problem for this fool is that once his anger subsides, he has to live with the consequences, which are often permanent. Think before we speak. That's a good rule. I was taught as a kid. Think before you speak, because you can't take back words. You can't take back hurt that your words cause. I've met men in prison who, for 20 seconds of anger, have lost their entire lives. That's why the Bible says it's better that you meet an angry bear Better to meet an angry bear than a fool who can't control himself. They cause so much destruction and misery. Verse 13. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. What a powerful phrase. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. Turn to 1 Samuel 25. Let's look at some examples of this. 1 Samuel 25. This is the story of David and Nabal. 1 Samuel 25. Verse number one. And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out ten young men. And David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus shall you say to him that liveth in prosperity, Peace be both to thee, and peace be to thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. And now I have heard that thou hast shearers. Now thy shepherds which were with us, we heard them not, neither was there aught missing unto them all the while they were in Carmel. 
Ask thy young men, and they will show thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a, in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand unto thy servants and to thy son David. And when David's young men came, they spake to Nabal according to all those words in the name of David and ceased. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed from my shearers and given unto men whom I know not whence they be? David had protected the livelihood of Nabal. He had done good to him. And he comes asking for assistance. And he gets rejected for his kindness. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? He knew who David was. Abigail, his wife, hears from a servant of David's about his kindness, and she returns the kindness by providing the provisions that are needed. And what does God do in response to Nabal's unkindness? Look at verse 36. Same chapter, verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning that when, that when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal, that he died. Nabal rewarded David's kindness with unkindness, is what he did. He dishonored David, though David had acted honorably. Those who reward evil for good, evil will not depart from their house. Consider this, this verse fulfilled in the life of Israel. Turn to Matthew 27. Israel received only good from the hand of the Lord. Blessings in abundance, mercy unmeasured. Though he put them in captivity, he brought them back. He always took care of his people. What happened when God came to them? Matthew 27, verse 22. The Bible says, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. What did Israel do? How did they repay God's kindness to them? They murdered him. First chance they got. They rejected him as king. They returned evil for his kindness. Pilate reiterates that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death. He tells the people that he's free from his blood. Now, he wasn't. <laughs> but what was the response of the people? Look at verse 25. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. What a powerful statement. His blood be on us and on our children. They repaid God's kindness with cruelty. His blood be on us and on our children. This is a real interpretive help, by the way. Go to Acts 2.39. Take a little detour for a minute. Remember that phrase, his blood be on us and on our children. Acts 
We're going to pause for a little lesson in Bible interpretation, compare Scripture with Scripture. As I was studying this, I felt really compelled to get into this again. Acts 2.39. The Bible says, For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. This gets used regularly by infant baptizers, sprinkle, those who sprinkle babies. They say that this verse means the promise of the new covenant is for them and for their children. So they sprinkle them and call it baptism, and they think it brings them into the new covenant. Okay? I don't mean to rehash our whole baptism series, but there's a lot wrong with that. First of all, the word for baptize means to immerse. Secondly, John the Baptist walked into the water. He wasn't on the shore with a cup. He was immersing people in the water. Thirdly, the earliest Christians baptized by immersion. immersion sprinkling didn't come up until about the third century, maybe even the fourth century, as a common practice. And those in the New Covenant are all born again. And that's to me the linchpin of baptism, is that all of those who are in the covenant are born again. Turn to Deuteronomy, or Jeremiah 31. Let's take a quick look at this. Jeremiah 31. If you wonder why I'm reminding you of this now, We've had several friends have, that have gone into infant baptism recently, and I want to remind our church, lest anyone get tempted with that, that it's not a biblical position. Jeremiah 31, and verse 31. The Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers from the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. So what is this new covenant? Look at verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is salvation. Knowing the Lord personally. That's what makes it a better covenant than the old covenant. Those who are in the new covenant, their sins are forgiven. Their law, his law is in our inward parts, it's written upon our hearts. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Number six. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. 
For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, the new covenant he hath made, the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because all, not all of those in the old covenant were actually saved. What makes the new covenant better is that everybody in it is saved. They know the Lord. His law is written in our hearts. That means we don't sprinkle our children and call them members of the covenant if they're not saved. To be part of the new covenant, they must become Christians. Look at verse 11 again. And they shall teach, they shall not teach every man his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. All shall know him. Who is all? Well, everybody in the covenant. The idea that our children are unsaved members of the covenant is blatantly unbiblical. Now go back to Acts 2.39, where we started all this. Acts 2.39. We live in a day when a lot of Baptists are being drawn into Presbyterianism and infant baptism. Let me tell you, it's, a, it's important to know your Bible. It's important to know why you believe. See, I'm not Baptist by tradition. I'm Baptist by conviction. I know what I believe because the Bible teaches it. He says there, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as, as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise here is not even new covenant salvation. The disciples were already saved before the day of Pentecost, were they not? So what happened on Pentecost didn't save them. So the promise he's talking about is not salvation. It's referencing the coming of the Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was not even a Baptist, taught that this promise here was not salvation, but spirit empowerment. It's a matter of simply being honest with the text. So why them and their children? That goes back to Matthew 27. These are people who crucified Jesus. These are people who were there at the crucifixion, who cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. And then Peter comes to the gospel and says, by the way, the promise is to you and to your children. The promise is to you and to your children. Peter is pointing out that God's blessing was greater than their curse. They had filled themselves with the blood of the Messiah, and now when they repent, the Messiah would fill them with the Holy Spirit. It was a bit of a detour, I know, but I felt it was very important to get into for just a moment. Go back to our text. Right, don't go back to our text. 2 Samuel 12, go there. Let me read you our text. Proverbs 17, 13. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. 2 Samuel 12, 10. This is following the sin of David and Bathsheba. And God's punishment had come upon David. 
This is the ultimate example of what the verse in Proverbs is talking about. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. The Bible says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah to be the Hittite to be thy wife. Uriah had been had done nothing but been loyal and good to David. He wouldn't even go home to his wife while the men were in battle. He slept outside David's house. He was loyal. He was good to David. How did David repay him? He killed him. He had him murdered as a result. And God says, you know what? Those who reward evil for good. So the sword will never depart from your house. How many people died down through history because David rewarded Uriah with evil for good. When you, when you consider that this verse is in Proverbs 17, you can go back there if you would. Proverbs 17, 13. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. Solomon being not only the son of David, but the son of David and Bathsheba, knew this proverb all too well. All too well. Make sure people are good to you. Reward them with good, not with evil. Don't betray others. Be faithful. Be loyal. I know that David is a hero of the Bible to many people. But let's be honest. Uriah is the hero of the story, not David. He was a good man, an honest man, a loyal and a faithful man. Verse 14. The beginning of strife is as when one let out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. The beginning of strife is like a small leak in a dam that just gets bigger and bigger until the whole thing gives way. You ever watch a dam release water? What power? You've never seen power until you've seen water. Go home tonight if you've never done it. Go on YouTube and type in water being released from dam. I'm telling you, the power of that water flowing out of there. It's amazing. The beginning of the strife is when a little water is let out, but what happens? It's bigger and bigger and bigger. Don't, don't let anger sit in your heart. It turns into bitterness. It starts so small. You think, I can control this. I'm just mad at so-and-so, but I can control it. And you get more mad and more mad and more mad. And pretty soon you get bitter and angry and resentful. And you can no longer control your feelings anymore. Don't let it get to that point. Stop it right away. Make peace right away. Let go of the anger. Turn it over to the Lord. The beginning of strife is one one let it out water. Therefore, or because of that, leave off contention before it be meddled with. Don't let it get out of hand. Be a peacemaker. Bring calm to volatile situations. Be the voice of reason before the dam breaks and things are out of control. Verse 15, he that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. This is speaking in a legal sense. Those who pervert justice by letting the guilty off or condemning a just person are abomination to the Lord. Why does the Lord so abhor injustice? We see it all throughout Proverbs. The Lord hates injustice. And the answer is simply that he's just. The nature of sin is that sin violates the nature of God. 
Sin is a violation of who God is. God is just. He's equitable. And God hates that which is opposed to his nature. Keep in mind, Jesus was unjustly condemned and Barabbas was let go unjustly. Make sure when you're judging, listen, most of us aren't judges in here. I don't think anybody here is a judge. But we're called on from time to time to judge matters or to sit on juries and legally judge people. Make sure you're just in your judgment. Make sure you're equitable. Make sure you're fair and honest in keeping with the nature of God. Verse 16. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? The Hebrew here is literally, wherefore is this, or what is this? What good would it do to bring wisdom to a fool when he doesn't have the heart to retain it? His heart is set on foolish things. He can't know wisdom. There's a point to be made here about work salvation, I think. People think their works will justify them before God when their heart is fixed on foolishness. We can't do righteousness. Remember Romans chapter 8? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. How can you earn your way to heaven? By righteous deeds when your heart is set on wickedness. You can't. You can't. Righteousness flows from our inner man. If our inner man is wicked, our works that flow from it are wicked too. I don't care how, how morally right those works are. Moral people who are unsaved and trusting their moral works to justify them before God have made one crucial mistake. Their heart is fixed on foolishness. They cannot do that which is righteous. They want to purchase the wisdom of God. Now we know the wisdom of God is personified in who? In Christ. They want to purchase Christ with a price. Yet their heart can't receive him because it's full of wickedness and unrepentant sin. Verse 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, not just in good times, but also in bad. You ever had those friends who were fair-weather friends? I've had those. Things go wrong, and where, where are they at? They're gone. They're gone. That's not a true friend. A true friend is there in good times and in bad times. In rich times and in poor times. In feasting and in famine. By the way, if you're one of those friends that's not there for somebody in feast or famine, you're not a true friend to somebody else. We've all had those friends that they're in it for themselves. They're in the relationship for themselves. And when they can no longer get something from the relationship, what do they do? They split. They're gone. Why? Well, they were never your friend. They used you to get what they could get from you. But they didn't care for you. A friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. Solomon is putting it, no difference between a friend and a brother here. A close friend who sticks by you in hard times is as much a brother as a natural born one. A friend who will love you at all times is as much your family as flesh and blood. That's what he's saying. Verse 18, a man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. A fool is a cosigner. That's an easy way to say it. A fool is, don't cosign for people. Don't put your name out there for somebody else's debt. That's such a, a dangerous thing to do. Many people are ruined this way. It's bad policy. Even the unsaved understand that's not a good idea. Don't, don't do it. If they need help, help them. 
if you can. But don't put your name out there for their debt. They're probably fools if they need that kind of help anyways. They probably have a track record of foolishness. Don't do it. Don't do it for your kids or grandkids. Let them earn their credit there on their own. Teach them the value of hard work and dedication. A fool puts himself out there for somebody else's debt. Verse 19, he that loveth transgression, loveth strife. He that exalteth his gate, seeketh destruction. Those who love sin, love trouble, because sin brings trouble. Those who love sin, love trouble. Have you ever met those people? I have. There's a lot. They're out there all over the place. They think they'll get away with their sin. They think there's no consequences for their sin. We're going to see on Wednesday night in Zephaniah, those who say, God will do neither good nor bad. He's not paying attention. He's not going to do anything about it. Let me tell you, he will. He will. The day is coming. The reference to exalting his gate is thought by some commentators to be an actual gate of a house. I think the most likely interpretation is his mouth. Listen to Micah 7, verse 5. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide, keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. In the Hebrew, it actually says the gate of thy mouth. This is a common reference to the mouth. Don't lift up your mouth in blasphemy or haughty speech. Guard your mouth carefully. Those who don't seek destruction. When people walk by today, they just blaspheme God so easily. You ever preach and somebody just walks by and the things they say about God just make you tremble for them. And so proud, as if God just won't do anything. So carefree about it. Listen, trouble's coming. Trouble is coming if they don't flee to Christ. Many lives have been lost due to someone mouthing off, not guarding the gate of their mouth. Fights are caused by, because people don't guard their mouth, guard their speech. I'm going to stop here for tonight. But listen, our takeaways tonight are don't be a surety for somebody else. Make, make people work for their... People need to rely on themselves. You can help people, but don't put your name out there. Don't put your name as responsible for the debt of a fool. It's only going to hurt you. Guard your mouth. Guard your mouth. A fool will bring only strife. He'll bring it like a broken dam that just gets bigger and bigger until you can't control it anymore. So be wise, be a peacemaker. Love justice, do equity. When it's your power, act justly towards one another and love one another. A, a friend loves at all times. Make sure we're the kind of friends to each other and to other people. That's like close family. That's like a brother or a sister. Don't make friendships just to help yourself. In other words, be a friend to help others. And if they're being a friend to help you, you're helping one another. But don't be the kind of friend. That's, that's the problem with marriage today. That's why so many marriages end in divorce. You know why? Because no one's in it to serve. No one's in it to serve. He's in it to get what he can get from her, and she's in it to get what she can get from him. And when one isn't getting what they want from the other, what do they do? They just leave. They find somebody else. They can leech off somebody else what they want to get. True marriage, true relationship is he's in it to, for her to get something. And she's in it for him to get something. 
Friendship's the same way. We're to serve and love one another. I should be in a friendship with you because I want to benefit you, and you should be in a friendship with me because you want to benefit me. And that's how we lay down our lives for one, for one another. Be the kind of friend that's like a brother or a sister to somebody else. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessings upon this tonight. May we take these proverbs, these wise sayings, and apply them to our lives. And Solomon, who gave many of these, he didn't do that. He wandered away. Which shows us that just knowing, just having the head knowledge doesn't mean that we're on the right track. We need to apply it to our lives. Lord, make us just, make us peacemakers. Make us friends that are like family. Help us to serve one another. Help us to forsake foolishness and seek the wisdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.